Welcome to episode 8 of the Nerd Culture Podcast. I'm your host, David, and with me I have Richard. Hey, hey. Crystal. Hello. And Luke. Greetings, Culturalites. Nerd Culture Podcast is a fortnightly Australian podcast that focuses on nerd culture-related film, book, and comic reviews with a healthy dose of opinion thrown in for good measure. Uh, Not only do we have the podcast, but we also have our website at www.nerdculturepodcast.com, which features additional content not found on the podcast itself. For this episode, we have a dust jacket on sci-fi literary classic Lord of Light, followed by a massive From the Racks, focusing on the second and third weeks of the New 52 from DC Comics. Well, technically the third and fourth weeks of the New 52, if you really get technical about it. Because Justice League came out first. I like to think of that more as a special event. That's true. First up, Dust Jacket. Take it away, Richard. Yes, uh, Lord of Light uh, is a book by Roger Zelazny. Um, it's a uh, winner of the Hugo Award and one of the highly, most highly praised science fiction books of all time, and deservedly so. But let me tell you a little bit about the plot before we get to that. Lord of Light is set on a distant planet where gods walk the earth. Uh, the gods are actually mutant humans who have uh, at some point in the past ended up on the planet. Uh, enslaved the original inhabitants of the planet that they refer to as demons and have actually then populated the planet um, with obviously a new race of humans but have kept themselves elevated above those humans through the use of their mutant powers and through the use of advanced technology um, including, and most important to the story, uh, body swapping technology and creating new bodies for themselves and more powerful bodies for themselves. Reincarnation power? Yeah. I also like the fact that they like, keep the technology of the planet at a medieval level. Mm. Yeah, but, but they of course, yeah, but they of yeah. course yeah, all elevated. Yeah. Which is really uh, the theme of the book is very much um, illustrated by that point. This book is about uh, power, uh, the effect that power has on individuals, um, and the abuse of that power by godlike beings. Absolute um, power corrupts absolutely. I exactly it's right. Like the Arthur C. Clarke thing at um, sufficient technology and. What is seem like for, from magic. Yeah. Exactly right. One of the things that I, I absolutely love about this book um, is that it actually explores the nature of mythology and religion and kind of casts a very negative light on, uh, on religion, religious practices, on godhood. It really brings into question uh, the nature of mythology, but at the same time, it does so by creating its own mythology. And I find that absolutely fascinating because it uses godhood to look at the nature of humanity and uh, does it through our central character of Sam, who is actually rebelling against the gods. Sam's a very complex character. Um, He believes in the self-determination for the humans because he believes the power has corrupted the gods. But at the same time, there's there's a lot more complexity to him as a character than just the basic, you know, free the humans type of character. Well, one of the things I like about the, the point that you make about um, Sam being rebelling against the gods is that the gods are still trying to use Sam for their own purposes. They're actually, yeah. you know, setting him up as a figurehead for their own um, their own scheme. Yeah, well, once he rebels, mm. they take advantage of that to, mm. to weed out further rebellion. Mm. It's like, okay, well, whoever he convinces, mm. they're obviously 
enemies as well. And yeah, so we'll take them out all in one foul swoop. It just unfortunately doesn't work out that way. Mm-hmm. But uh, also, it's just I just I love. I mean, the god. He's a god. And his name is Sam. Mm. I mean, what is Sam actually short for? Mahasamatman. But you just prefer Sam. Uh, I think that, and that's a great <laughs> opening. That's one of the best openings I've read. His followers called him Mahasamatman, and he and said he was a god. He preferred to drop the Maha and the Atman, however, and called himself Sam. He never claimed to be a god, but then he never claimed not to be a god. Circumstances being what they were, neither admission could be of any benefit. Silence, though, could. I just think that's a great way to open it. It is a great opening. In one paragraph, I know full well who the main character is, what their position is in this universe, but also at a hint of their mentality as well, in that there's a... The, the psychology of Sam is actually summed up very nicely in the opening paragraph. Mm. And it hooks you. I was, from that first couple of sentences, I was absolutely hooked on this book. Mm. It was like, I wanted to know everything about Sam. I wanted to know about the world that he inhabited, the nature of, of godhood that, uh, you know, that he embodies. It was really just, it, it got me in very quickly and very easily. I wasn't really hooked until I started figuring out who the gods were, where they'd come from and what they were actually doing. But mm. when you started reading between the lines, and I was more interested in the story that wasn't being told. I can see that, yeah, definitely. There is, really, the, the backstory behind these characters is a little ambiguous. Mm. And whilst you're told what they're doing, often the, the, the motives and motivations they have for what they're doing are uh, kept hidden. Um, yeah. And well, it, which is really, I don't think that's true. I mean, it's it's they they all have specific reasons for doing what they're doing, and it's I mean, it's all it's all spelled out. I mean, they may not be deep and meaningful reasons, but they're all I mean, they're all specific. I mean, but Carly wants out. control. Ganesha just wants peace. But I think that, Sam wants to overthrow the old, old, old government. It's, it's, but I think they're spelled out um, slowly through the book. They're developed, and it's through the actions of the characters that you begin to understand their motivations, yeah. and and that's I think is a is a. It's not big on exposition, no. Which is not it's more about, which it's is, more about which discovery, is which yeah. is excellent. Which is excellent. But, yeah, but that's it, he's these days a writer with the using these ideas would have a fifty book series, yeah, and that would t- probably be considered you know part one of yeah. this uh, thousand book sequence, <laughs> and yet it fit, and he compresses it all into two hundred and eighty four pages, mm. yeah. Well, it's a very it's a very densely plotted book, but um, at no point did I feel bogged down in anything. No, um, and there's some absolutely fantastic supporting characters. Yeah, the supporting characters um, to me are actually my favourites. Lord Yama. Lord Yama is a legend. Lord magnificent. Yama. The, the, the first, that because he, he starts with being very shadowy. Yeah. And sort of being a bit of an offsider of um, Rutri. Yeah. The moment where Mara, in an attempt to you know, confront the gods and Lord Yama puts him in his place. Yeah. And it's one one magnificent scene. I love his death stare. The death stare. <laughs> that's it. But there's also, um, later on, Lord Yama gets into a very epic fight. Yeah. And it takes a while. And in another book, that epic fight would just seem long and boring and plotting. You see, they're going, oh my God, this could have been over in two pages. And yet here, it's interesting. It tells its own story. You get some insight into Lord Yama as a character. Um... And the fight itself is actually very well choreographed. Yeah. Um, and he has and very good reasons for doing what he's doing. And he has very good reasons for doing what he's doing. Yeah. Actually, yeah, I actually thought he was the most interesting character in the book. Mm. And um, the enemies of Sam, uh, Brahma, um, Kali, Krishna, are also very interesting characters. They all have their own motivations. Some are petty, some are more noble. 
Um, some believe themselves to be noble, but actually are quite petty when you sort of read between the lines. Yeah. And that's, you know, it plays to the nature of humanity. So we've obviously through mentioned the examination the, of godhood. We've obviously mentioned a couple of the, of the names of the gods themselves. So it, uh, so it's basically Indian mythology. Hmm. Um, it is with yeah. uh, Hinduism that it uses. So it's um, and Buddhism. There's yes. a little bit. Of, there's a little bit of Buddhism. A bit, because a little, Sam, little bit Sam, Sam, remember he gets called Buddha at one point. Does, yeah. Yeah. Well, Sam basically essentially becomes Buddha, but he mm, uses yeah. he uses religion to and fight religion. And yeah. he finds the real Buddha. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah so it's uh, that that I find very interesting. I mean, that that all stems, uh, I think, from the fact that this ship was originally called the Star of India, mm. and they're basically just. Uh, I mean, I can only assume it's not specifically stated, but I can only assume that they are actually also Indians, mm. because and yeah, they, they 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 then. Um, except for two of the crew, who are, uh, I believe, American Christians, mm, so yeah. the the chaplain and the pilot. That's correct. Yeah. Um, so they say so they embrace you know, Indian mythology in order to. I, I, I found that an interesting choice as well. So it's just it's not often that you get um, a non-Indian writer embracing another culture's mythology to tell his story. I think you've got to remember. I also sort of think of the circumstances. This was written in '67 when um, there was a bit of a an Eastern mysticism influx yeah. into Western. Um, in our edition, um, Adam Roberts mentions um, the Beatles with Sergeant Pepper and yeah. Yeah. Um, Robert Sol and you know George Harrison's yeah. quite clear sitar music. Uh-huh. Um, you can sort of hear that playing in the background when you're it's reading this. Can, yeah. um, so I think that's a lot of where that comes from. The looking yeah. beyond the, you know the immediate borders of your own culture right. and look, seeing what the rest of the world has. Uh-huh. Um, and he does it so well. And he does it very well. And it's also very well, It you know, at no point does it seem to be badly researched. Oh, no, it's incredibly researched. Mm. Yeah, I also, I'm, also, I'm a big fan of the first six chapters, mm. about how the first six, chap- first, about how the first six chapters ap- actually represent the great wheel of life. Mm. As you basically read the first six chapters continuously as a loop. Mm. So it starts off in, you know, the current, and mm. then it goes back and then tells you what, why we got to this point, and then continues on in a cycle mm. and you could you could theoretically just keep reading those six mm. chapters you know and that represents the reincarnation and mm-hmm. and how if you don't actually if you can't figure it out mm. you're not going to be able to move on yeah. to the next stage yeah clearly awesome. he's, re- awesome. he's read the Mahabharata and um yeah. the Ramayana and things like that which yeah. also use you know the going the back the back and forth um to tell their stories which is you know the stories of Hindu Hindu mythology yeah um, and yeah, as we've said he does it very well really really, what you're getting at is I think what the real strength of this book is and it just it works on so many different levels it works as a character study it works as a study of religion it works as a study of the nature of power it works as a mythological parable as I said earlier it completely questions the nature of mythology and religion whilst creating mythology at the same time. And there's so much depth to this book. Yeah. Um, and also, I just want to say, too, um, it is one of the most perfectly written books I've ever seen. There isn't a wasted word or sentence in the story at all. Although, mention should be made of the god-awful pun that he has in it. <laughs> yes, there is, there is one pun uh, <laughs> that uh, comes early on in the book. Which was apparently one of the uh, bases for him writing the book in the first place. George, in the in the forward to the edition I've got, George R. R. Martin talks about you know the pun, and the pun is, and then suddenly the fit hit the shan. Yeah, um, and then George R. R. Martin, who was asking because he was a friend of Roger Selasny, uh, was asking about that pun, and Roger Selasny, who always liked to 
um, sort of have say things with a hint of irony, and there was always a, 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 nice, eye. a mischievous glint whenever he said this. Said that basically the entire book was written around that pun. Yeah, yeah. awesome. Um, which I thought, which I've, I've always loved. Which... It's, it's a god awful pun, <laughs> yeah. but still it works. Well, it's impressive that for such a terrible pun, he was able to produce such a great book. <laughs> cool. I also want to touch on the fact that uh, Lord of Light was actually going to be made into a film in 1979. Yeah. $50 million film, in which the sets were going to be used for a theme park. And the theme park was going to be designed by none other than the great Jack Kirby. Yes, that's so there actually So there are still pictures uh, that exist about his, his designs. And I've got to tell you, Sam is magnificent. I, I'd strongly recommend anybody jump onto the web and uh, look up Jack Kirby, Lord of Light. Yeah. Um, or check out there's uh, all of the artworks being reproduced in the Jack Kirby Collector magazine. Oh, okay. But they are just they are magnificent, magnificent to behold. Yeah. The city, it's... the actual city itself, is just unbelievable. Yeah. Well, what's actually more interesting about this story is, I mean, yeah, I mean, books get made into films all the time, but it never happened, obviously, unfortunately. But uh, what's more interesting is the CIA then used information about the theme park and the film in one of their operations. <laughs> Saying that they were scouting, oh. they were scouting locations for the film. Yes, um, but really they were actually a deep cover infiltration team trying to get U.S. diplomatic staff that were trapped in another country. So brilliant stuff. Yeah, no, I've read about that um, that case because um, they 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 went specifically over there. It was in Iran. Iran, yeah. Um, they renamed the script Argo, hmm. but used Jack Kirby's pictures and stuff. And it, uh, used it to get the hostages, which was a successful operation. Yeah, no, that's that, that's one of those ones that they've also tried to make into a film. You know, going on the nature of uh, oh, that actual yeah, that the actual, actual CIA actual story, CIA, CIA story, breed stuff. So there you go, Lord of Light saving lives. Yeah. <laughs> um, favorite bits: the confrontation between Yama and Mara yeah. uh, at the beginning of the book. Um, when really he comes to was... investigate the. The disturbances. That's right. Was an absolute highlight for me. Uh, As Luke was saying, it uh, just beautifully summed up everything about Yama in one perfect scene. Yeah. Well, being uh, being the the person that I am, I actually quite like the final battle. (laughs) Just where the the fit hits the shed as as it has been. It's just all over the place. And Carly, Carly's just awesome. But it's exciting. Yeah. You know, it's it's a. It's a well-written battle that get you, you know you're fired up by that point. You're ready for the big confrontation, yeah. and he delivers. Mm. Yeah. Also, like the fact that uh, the Christian priest eventually, essentially, becomes the devil. Yeah. I mean, he's got undead warriors that follow his every whim. He exists in the shadows, moving against mythology. Just pretty stuff. There's too much, too much cool stuff in this book. One of my favorite bits is where Yama and Sam meet. For the first time, where Yama just had his cool epic fight uh-huh. in the forest, and now goes the great on, battle. The great battle, and now goes on to confront Sam, expecting to have a similar result. You know, just being physical, um, it being more about you know ability with sword and power. And Sam uses his his intellect and his wisdom yep. to outwit Yama. And I just thought that was a magnificent moment. Because yep. at no point was Yama portrayed as being weak, but Sam was always portrayed as being clever. Yep. The wordplay that he uses to to defeat Yama yeah. um, is nice and poetic, yet also being quite funny. Yeah, um, I just thought it was a, a, a magnificent moment. Yama is awesome. He gets he gets treated quite harshly. I mean, Kali, it's, it's just a marriage of convenience. Mm. And then when she gets the opportunity to be reincarnated as a man, it's like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I was like, well, what about us? <laughs> it's, it's 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 bizarre. 
I also it's... liked the first uh, confrontation between Sam and uh, Taraka. The demon? The, the demon, mm, yeah. the rickshaw. Yeah. And the fact that um, Sam thinks he's in control of the situation yeah. <laughs> and then is basically completely lost for the next uh, 20 or 30 pages because his yeah. body is taken over by Taraka. And I think that, that kind of grounded Sam a bit as well. Yeah. Because up until that point, he was very much... Everything he did was right and perfect and he was so cool and exciting and everything. And then he just completely screws up. Yeah. And it was nice. It, it was, was nice. It, it added depth to the character. And that's another thing about this book. It's just jam-packed full of ideas. Yeah. Not, gods aside, demons taking over, you know... Bodies. Bodies of, you know, bodies of the main character and that, you know, bleeding the plot out of the next couple of pages. There are more, there are more ideas in this book back in 1967 than there are in a lot of 100-page epics... In uh, just about every comic we're about to review. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just, in, just, just in books in general. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think you made a good point earlier. This is a novel that, you know, in the hands of a modern writer, would be a 15-part series, a 1,000 pages each. Yeah. But he has compacted it beautifully into 280 pages. Hmm. I didn't like the book as much as you guys did. I found I had to work too hard to find out what the actual story was. I think mainly it's because I don't have a knowledge of the Indian mythology. Um, it didn't come across as easily accessible to me. So, like I said before, I I found started to find it interesting. I was more hooked when I got to the point where I could where I understood who the gods were, how they were operating, and I was more interested in that backstory than I was interested in the story that was being presented to me. Well, having a, a background in mythology does. Help, but it's not. It does help. It's I mean, not necessary. I, I, did not, I didn't. I mean, they're not I technically didn't. the same guys as in the original stories. Hmm. I didn't get the wheel of time thing, and maybe I don't know whether it was because I wasn't concentrating enough. But I, the, from the first chapter to the second chapter, I didn't get that there was a jump back in time. So I was very confused when Yama showed up again, and he was a completely different person. Yeah, and on I, the other side, that's that's what the hell going on? Yeah. Hmm. No, actually, I, I I must admit I had the same problem. Uh, when I first started reading it, I actually went back and read the first two chapters again um, after I'd finished them, just to make sure that I yeah. I was understanding what was going yeah, on. I so I, I, can, I can see where you're coming from. And I from. wanted to go back and, and double check, but I was worried I wouldn't get the book finished. So I just I just kept ploughing on, thinking, oh well, I'll figure it out along the way. I'm pretty sure I know what's going on, and then I, my suspicions were confirmed later. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with the subject, so yeah. I. I did realise at the six and then went back. But I actually did, I intentionally went back to chapter one, two, and then read those six chapters again and then moved on. Mm. So, yeah. uh, I wasn't going to read it all. I know, I was a bit. I'd already done the work. I wasn't going to read it. I'm a super mega nerd, so that's, that's why I did that sort of thing. So it sounds like you were more, I, I guess, the more human story was what appealed to you more. Yeah. Because the, the, the story at the start is very much a God story, hmm. and it's when it you sort of get past those first couple of chapters it actually gets into the human side of the gods and becomes a little bit more grounded after those first couple of chapters. Yeah. So My favourite bit was um, when Sam goes to the temple and demands to speak to the gods and then he gets through and he's just taunting them like, oh, <laughs> yes. I know who you are, I know what you're really doing. And, yeah. <laughs> that was my he, he really does... Yeah, that's uh, the point where put, I started to put together what was actually going yeah. on. Mm. He certainly puts them in their place, that's, that's for yeah. sure. And that's that it. was a good take. Yeah. You look good as a man or something. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, ratings. Your turn. This is as close to a perfect novel as I've seen in a long time. 
Uh, it's certainly one of the best novels that I've encountered in my new read every science fiction book ever written. And I give it five Lukes. Absolutely brilliant. Luke. Okay, this is a classic. Undisputed. I love it. Loved it when I read it 20 years ago. Five Lukes. Crystal. Three Lukes. Fair enough. I'll give it four Lukes. It's a, a classic of science fiction and I highly recommend it for everybody, not just uh, science fiction people. It uh, is incredibly well written and you can't go wrong. What's Do that? yourself a favour. It's a book about gods. Read it. <laughs> <laughs> Coming up next, From the Racks. Okay, so as we mentioned at the intro to the uh, podcast, this edition of From the Racks, we continue our coverage of the new 52 from DC Comics. Uh, this time we're covering week two, week three, depending on how you look at it, and week four. We're covering two weeks of comics, 25 issues. That's right, 25 issues of just pure gold, every single one of them. Breeds. Except for the ones that aren't. Except for the ones that were crap. <laughs> <laughs> for the followers of the website as well as the podcast, you would notice in the last edition that we had, on the podcast we just had one particular person review the comic and what they thought of it, and then uh, the rating. And then on the website itself, we had an unedited version of the full... Mind-blowing discussion. That's right. Thank you. <laughs> Basically, so we could get the podcast down, because it was just it was horrendous. It was like two and a half hours. It was insane. So this one's going to be relatively the same. So uh, we're going to follow the same process. That seemed to be quite popular. Uh, thank you very much for your feedback. So we'll do the same thing. So for the actual podcast itself, we'll just be the one person uh, reviewing their issue. And then uh, on the website, we'll have the full unedited uh, mind well, discussion. That's right. <laughs> we'll be slightly edited because I have to take out the swearing that undoubtedly will occur during Catwoman and Red Hood. So take it away, Luke, with Batman and Robin. Alright, Batman and Robin issue one, um, written by Peter J. Tomasi, um, illustrated by Patrick Gleason. Well, first of all, it's a long awaited you know, run by Patrick, by Peter Tomasi and Patrick Gleason. They did three issues of the previous run, took a break to get the relaunch happening. Um, and effectively, all this, what this is, is that setting up the relationship between Bruce and Damien. As it's all about, you know, the nature of trust between Batman and his son. Damien was previously Robin to Dick Grayson's Batman, and they had they had a, um, a quite interesting, friendly relationship, and now it's going back to the old status quo. Damien is now finding it difficult to be with Bruce because Bruce is a lot less trusting. That's pretty much it in a nutshell. Not too bad. If you're reading the previous version of Batman and Robin, it's quite easy to pick up on the events in this as such. There was a new villain called um, the Nobody introduced in the opening pa- in the opening pages, setting up what could be um, a quite interesting confrontation between the Dark Knight and this new villain. And overall, it's not a bad issue. A little bit more plot might have helped. I give this three point five looks. Excellent. Coming up next, Crystal with Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman, Brian Azzarello and Cliff Chang. My favourite thing about this book is the front cover. I love the retro kind of design on the front cover. It's almost almost woodcut. I like that. Having said that, the rest of the book went downhill from there on. (laughs) I have no idea what was going on in this book. Absolutely no clue. Uh, Didn't know any of the characters. They weren't really explained very well. I didn't know any character until Diana appeared. I couldn't follow the story at all. I think this is a total fail as a first issue. Okay. That was short and sweet. Very short and sweet. I like it. And your rating? And my rating is 0.5 weeks because I don't want to get exposed. 
complete zero because of the cover. Also, you know, I didn't really pay much attention to the sexiness of it, but uh, there is, you know, someone made a good point that she jumps out of bed, she got a sheet wrapped around her, and then the next minute she's topless. Like, why? And why is the, uh, why is, what's her name, Zola or Lola? Zola. Zola. So he obviously made a great impression. Hmm. Why has she got no pants on for the whole book? And uh, it just, uh, it, it, it made no sense. Who are these people? Why are they crushing through the door? Okay. It makes, it makes no sense at all. Okay, moving on to Batman. We have a look. Okay, Batman, written by Scott Snyder and illustrated by Greg Capullo. This is probably one of the more one of the more highly touted um, books. Snyder was um, a previous scribe on the Dark Knight when um, he wrote Detective in its most recent incarnation before the reboot. And I've got to say, of the actual core Bat books starring Batman, this is the one to read. It sets up everything you need to know about the character. It provides you with an interesting mystery. You get a great look at Batman's supporting cast. A lot happens in the issue. It's not just, you know, here's a pretty picture that followed by another pretty picture, followed by someone kicking, someone punching. The progression from panel to panel and page to page is interesting. Snyder has a great sense of who Bruce Wayne is. Going from writing Dick to suddenly writing Bruce Wayne, I had no trouble distinguishing both characters. Greg Capullo's artwork is sufficiently moody, but also manages to tell the story as well. There is some really nice, nicely written lines of dialogue, including the closing line of the of the issue. This is for me a five Luke book. Wow! Wow! Five Luke's nice. Coming up next, we have Supergirl with myself. Okay, Supergirl. The what is it like the fifth or sixth series of attempt at a Supergirl comic? I don't know, something like that. Uh, Rias, uh, Michael Green, and Michael Johnson, and the penciler is Mahmoud Azra. I liked it. It's uh, it basically it, it reintroduces Supergirl into the new universe. Obviously, so it's the reboot once again, another reboot of Four Supergirl. Uh, it has her just coming to Earth, and at the first thinking it's all a dream, and eventually finding out the hard way that it is not a dream. And uh, sets her up for her new attitude, which uh, DC were uh, very eager to say during all their promotions that it's this is this is not the typical Supergirl. She doesn't like Earth, and you better get out of her way, sort of stuff. So it gives you a good reason for why she's going to be that way, because she gets attacked the minute she arrives. Uh, I like her costume. It follows a similar theme. Um, so obviously they uh, they're setting up a connection between. So basically, it's it's I, I guess it's meant to represent sort of upper class Kryptonian armor type stuff, um, yeah. ceremony type stuff. She does, she does mention that uh, she wasn't wear, meant to wear it yet until her next birthday, but she snuck it on just for the, to have a look because it looks cool, which is pretty good, which is, you know, a, like a nice little character moment. Um, but the only thing that I didn't like about the costume is that it rides up far too high on her hips. Um, I mean, I'm not a prude, but it just seems a bit odd. I mean, she's meant to be quite young, and uh, it just wasn't really necessary. I mean, just... The artwork is quite cool. It's easy to follow, um... And I give it 3.5 looks. Moving right along, we have Batwoman with, funnily enough, Luke. Batwoman, issue one, written by J.H. Williams III and W. Hayden Blackman, um, with illustration by J.H. Williams III. This is a book I have been looking forward to for a year and a half now, ever since um, Rucker and Williams' run on um, Detective, which was cut painfully short. 
Um, I, have ha- I have been hanging out for this book, and it has been well worth the wait. It's it. Um, you do need to have read Detective Comics. Follow. They try and catch you up with what has happened, but really to get a sense of the character and what has happened to her, it, you do need to go and have read their run on Detective Comics. But this is the best looking book to date. Yeah, I think there's about four or five different art styles in the book itself, and yet at no point does it look like a mess. It doesn't look. Does the artwork never looks inconsistent? And yet each art style is suited to its particular part of the story. The grey wash moments for um, Batwoman herself, giving it a more fantastical, illustrated quality to the more straight lines of um, the Kate Kane stuff, to the harder inks, the harder blacks of the D.E.O. sequence. Um, it is a beautifully beautiful looking book. And it's a well-written one too. Um, a highlight for me was, that, in fact, the scene between Kate Kane and Maggie Sawyer, which is a follow-on from the Detective Comics run. Um, and it's nice to see that they've decided to continue um, the burgeoning relationship between Sawyer and Kate Kane because I was really looking forward to seeing what would become of that. Um, I liked the the hint to Montoya because yeah. um, I'm a big Montoya fan, and I like. Well, it, it, it was nice to see that there is still some um, feeling for her. Um, and yeah, this is a top notch book. Um, it has been the one that's been waiting for a year and a half, and I was not disappointed at all. Four and a half looks. Okay, so coming up next, we have Superboy. Okay, Superboy, yet again, uh, another attempt at a Superboy series. I, think, I, I believe this is Series 6. Uh, written by Scott Lobdell, uh, art by R.B. Silver. It's a similar take on the previous Superboy, where he is a genetically engineered clone. And he doesn't really have much experience with the outside world. In fact, he spends the majority of this issue in like a tube. It also, interestingly enough, uh, uh, introduces Caitlin Fairchild into the DC universe in a a very uh, fascinating way, I thought. I mean, it's gone as the Gen 13 Caitlin and it's more the science science Caitlin, which made a lot more sense because that's what she was like in Gen 13 before she became super-powered. Well, I'm assuming that that part will lead to Gen 13 becoming characters in the book, which which makes sense because the genetic experimentation was part of their origin story as That's well. Right. So tying it all together, I think... You can only assume Gen 13 are other projects at the yeah. same facility. Later and and that, that makes sense. It gives a good sort of unified... It's pretty cool. uh, unified approach to the world, which I'm yeah. always a fan of. And also has a very interesting hint at the, the relationship between Caitlin and Superboy, which obviously I won't reveal here, but... The artwork is... Uh, I found it quite pedestrian. I mean, it's it does what it has to do. It's easy to follow. Uh, I found it maybe a little too simple. I mean, it's... I'm a, I'm a child of the of the 80s and 90s, and so I like a few more lines. But, uh, I mean, it does what it has to do. It's not horrible by any means. It's far better than some of the other offerings we've had um, in this batch. And uh, story-wise itself, it, do- it tells you everything you need to know. Um, I, I quite liked it. It's, it uh, establishes um, the character that he is and why he does what he does and, and, uh, and gives some pretty good hints to what's going to happen in the future. And how he's going to react to things. I, I thought it was quite good. He's he's an interesting character, and and the first Superboy I've actually been interested in. Uh, the previous Superboy was just angst, 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 and you just wanted to slap him in the face half the time. Um, this uh, Superboy is, is quite interesting, and uh, and I'll be very I'll, I'll be I'll be very interested to see him face up against uh, Supergirl. Funnily enough, I mean I, the Superman confrontation I think is going to be pretty obvious, uh, but. Him meeting Supergirl, I think, would be pretty cool. And eventually, his introduction into the Teen Titans. Uh, I give this book three and a half looks. Okay, coming up next, we have 
Birds of Prey with Crystal. Hey, Birds of Prey. I'm going to get Richo to say the credits because they're too much of a mouthful. I'm pretty sure it's Dwayne Swierzynski, but I could be wrong, so I apologise, Dwayne, if that's not right. And uh, that he's the writer, and the artist is Jesus Sayers. There you go. Okay, so Birds of Prey. Um, again, another one that I really didn't know what was going on. You get to the scene where there's this invisible assassin dude is getting attacked. You can see that she's trying to stop some sort of operation there, but you, I can't tell what it is or why. Um, and while it's a better attempt at introducing the characters than Wonder Woman was, it still fails to say who the team are and what it is they actually do. The story wasn't clear. I thought it was a bit all over the place and none of the characters were likeable. Uh, the artwork was alright, but I just found it. There's too much going on, too hard to follow, too much jumping back and forth in time. I give it one look. It, I think it fails as a first issue. Fair enough. Uh, moving on, next we have Suicide Squad with Richo. Uh, Suicide Squad by Adam Glass and Federico Delaccio. Um, I must admit I had high expectations for this book. Um, I've always been a fan of the concept of Suicide Squad. The idea of uh, villains in prison being given a chance to reduce their sentence or even be released by going on highly dangerous missions that no one else wants to do. It's a great premise, and in the past it's created some really fascinating um, political storylines. Unfortunately, this book has no storyline at all. (laughs) This is effectively a 20-page torture comic. It's, here's some characters, we're going to torture them for 20 pages, we're not really going to tell you all that much about them as characters, but we'll torture them some more. Oh, and then at the end we'll say they've passed, and then we'll send them on a mission. Now... This is not a story. This is not the way you introduce characters to new readers, or even the concept of what the Suicide Squad is to new readers, because you don't really get a good sense of what the Suicide Squad is about. Um, And then, you know, this woman shows up at the end, who we're told is Amanda Waller, um, and she says, yes, you're going on a mission. It's just just a really, really badly written comic book. Um, I didn't get a sense for um, who the lead characters are they certainly try to do that whilst they're being tortured you get a little flashback to try and introduce you to the characters but it doesn't do a very good job of that there is one very very good line in this book uh when harlequin is being tortured uh she says that's so cute you think you're scary but mister i've seen scary and you ain't got his smile it's a great line it's the only good thing about the book (laughs) it's a bit harsh ready uh, I'm going to give this half a look. It's certainly not the worst book in the relaunch, but it's really not very good. Moving on to Richo and Blue Beetle. Blue Beetle has been one of the success stories for DC in recent years. Not so much in the comic itself. Um, the the original series only lasted, I think, about 25 to 30 issues. But um, in cross-media, he's been popular in appearances on... Smallville, um, on uh, The Brave and the Bold, and a few other areas. So, yeah, you know, he's, he's sort of uh, expanded out into the wider DCU in the comics, being a member of the Titans and so on. So, um, And I'm, I was a big fan of his old series. Uh, this is an actual reboot, uh, written by Tony Bedard and drawn by Ig Guara. But it seems like all of the previous continuity has, uh, 
has been removed because this is an actual origin story. And uh, look, as an origin story and as a first issue, it's solid. We're given a, a pretty good idea of who the character is, uh, who the supporting cast are going to be. We're shown how he gets the scarab that gives him his powers. So, look, it, it's not bad. Um, it does have the Brotherhood of Evil in it, and I'm a big fan of those guys. But um, at the same time, there's really nothing about this book that really stands out or or blew me away. It was just good, solid, kind of there. You know, not bad, not brilliant. It just is, really. Um, I'd, I'd call it probably middle-of-the-road storytelling. Solid, but not great. Um, I'd give it, you know, based on that, two and a half Luke's. Keeping it going. Coming up next, we have Resurrection Man with Luke. Okay. Um, Resurrection Man was a character um, created in the late 90s to the early 21st century um, by Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning. Um, It was a much praised run, that earlier run, but was not a huge commercial success, um, so it was eventually cancelled. Um, they've decided to re- um, to bring the character back um, with this new... Um, Appropriate. This new... What? They've, they've brought, they've brought they've, the character back? Yes, they've, they've resurrected, resurrected him. Res- <laughs> Sorry, I was, wait- um, I was waiting for that for like the last half hour. With this new one, um, again, written by Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning and uh, illustrated by Fernando Dagnino. And I've got, to, I've got to say, it's a pretty solid book. It is another complete reboot. It does not rely on past continuity. All that, ha- um, If you're reading this correctly, if I'm reading this correctly, that all that previous... Um, run has been scrapped and they are starting again. Mitch Shelley, the main character, um, is very interesting. I like the idea that he um, he dies, he comes back, but when he comes back he's got a different power. I'm also saying this not having read the original run, and I'm quite now after, after having read this issue, I'm quite looking forward to the um, the reprints that they're doing in January of the original run. Um, I like the original I like the um, the the conflict and the sort of mystery surrounding um, Resurrection Man, you know, the he's being his soul because no one's claimed it is being pursued now by both the DC Universe's version of Heaven and Hell, but we're not being specifically told who they are and what they are on about. There is an intriguing mystery. The stakes are quite high. I think this is very nicely illustrated, and I will be certainly picking up issue two. I give this three and a half looks. Okay, moving on to Captain Adam with Richard. Okay, uh, Captain Adam, by written by J.T. Krull and drawn by Freddie Williams. I have to admit that uh, J.T. Krull wrote what I consider the worst book of week one, and that was in Green Arrow. And so I went into this one, you know, with not a lot of expectation. Um, I am a fan of Captain Adam. I've always been a fan of the old Charlton characters. Um, and I have to say, uh, J.T. Krull actually surprised me with this issue. I think he's done a good job of presenting Captain Adam as an interesting character. He's facing, uh, you know, a, a dilemma that you know his powers are potentially killing him, which is not the most original idea. I mean, we've seen it in books like Spawn before, but what's interesting here is that it's not just that his powers are killing him; it's that his powers are. He believes his powers are making him lose his humanity and his connection to humanity, and I think that's a really interesting hook for the for the lead character. Um, I also like the fact that um, I also like the fact that J.T. Krull has obviously uh, done his homework and has uh, studied up on physics a bit, uh, because really, if your character is called Captain Atom and you're not trying to put it into a uh, bit more of a scientific and physics, uh, at least background for the stories, 
then I, I think you're you're really not doing your job as a writer. But I'm glad that he's grounded this in a in a bit of physics. Um, and yeah, I like I said, pleasantly surprised. And I think Freddie Williams' artwork is fantastic. It's a little bit different to some of the work that he's. Uh, produced in the past not quite as exaggerated as his former work on things like uh, jsa all-stars but um yeah this book actually really sold me i was very pleasantly surprised jt cool cruel has uh done his job here and i'm not going to uh, pick on him too much for green arrow now um but no, yeah still pick on him for green arrow but that was a piece of crap it was a piece of it crap but, rubbish um, from start to finish yeah well he has he's got a bit of a reputation certainly on the uh, online community <laughs> of being a terrible writer and uh, after green arrow it was the first book of his i'd ever read and i thought yep you know the online community is right but i think he's <laughs> redeemed himself a bit here and i think he's produced a good story interesting characters he's set up a interesting supporting cast really nice artwork there's probably a little bit too much exposition in a couple of the scenes uh, especially the scene where uh, Captain Amy is talking to uh, Professor Magala but um, overall I liked this and I'm going to give it uh, 3.5 weeks Okay, coming up next it's uh, myself with Red Hood and the Outlaws Okay, Red Hood and the Outlaws written by Scott Lobdell and Kenneth Rockefort on the artwork Let me start off with some positives <laughs> The cover is awesome The cover is really, really cool um, It's very dynamic, very well drawn. I've always been a fan of Kenneth Rockefort, so uh, quite good. The interior artwork, also quite good. Everybody's distinctive, and Starfire looks awesome. Now, DC have made it very clear that if you are not a 13 to 21-year-old heterosexual white male, they just don't give a rat's. It's their market audience, it's what they want to market to, it's what buys comics, I mean, and this is this is what they're doing. That's the, their market plan. And it's no more evident in this comic than it is in any of the others. Now, maybe we'll get to Catwoman later on, obviously. But this comic is... This comic screams 90s gratuitous uh, sexuality. And it suffers for it. Up until this point, I really quite enjoyed this comic. Um, the prison escape... I mean, yes, it's cliche, but it was pretty cool. And, uh, you know, the Padre with the... That with Arsenal's weapons and all that sort of stuff. I'm not giving off too much away there. It happens on the first two pages. Um, it was pretty groovy. I quite enjoy it. Starfire appears, kicks some major butt, which is what she can do. I mean, she is incredibly powerful. And uh, she proves it. And her costume, yeah, it's, you know, it's a bit revealing. but A bit? But, uh, you know, it's just no, no more than, you know, his typical superhero type fare. More importantly, it's no different. Really, no worse yeah. than what Starfire has worn. Originally, in the past. yeah, so that's that's all fine. I mean, it's it's that's what she does. I mean, she was when she was first introduced, she was introduced as you know, happy-go-lucky cheesecake, and that really doesn't seem to have changed, or has it? <laughs> Let me tell you, dear listener, it has changed. What they have done to this girl is an absolute travesty. Now, I'm not going to go on about how. That's not what she was like before the reboot. Because this is a reboot, people. Get it through your heads, it's a different character now. Okay, so it's got nothing to do with what she was previously. But why did they have to do to her what they did to her? I've got no problem with her being different. But why make her nothing more than just a vapid, sex-obsessed bimbo? I mean, there's just no need for it. I mean, it's, it's, it's illustrated perfectly in the fact that she essentially can't remember any of her past sexual experiences. Okay, so and then she comes on to uh, Roy, and off they go to do it. Now, in and of itself, that's actually not a problem. 
Okay, there's really this that's not that big a deal. I mean, she's an alien on Earth. She hasn't been here that long. She finds it hard to differentiate between between you know the men, the humans, and all that sort of stuff. I mean, you obviously would have problems. Every, I mean, we have problems differentiating between different chimps and stuff like that. But I mean, she's that's basically essentially how she sees it. This is just she's just here to to uh, to forget about her horrific past and slavery and have fun and enjoy herself. That's fine. I have no problem also with her having multiple sexual partners. That is also not a problem to me. I mean, is she can do what she wants. There's no, I, I don't bow down to that. Men can do as, as, as many as they want, whereas women can only have one or two. It's just the way she's portrayed in these scenes where she's posing half naked and she's posing for nobody in particular. She's not posing in front of Roy himself. Roy's not even looking in her direction. So what is with this doggy-style type pose that she seems to have? It's pointless. Why also does do they have to go out of their way to establish the fact that she doesn't have any emotional connection to her past sexual experiences? I mean, just a, a simple, yes, I like sex would have been sufficient. No, I'm not with Jason. Roy, let's go do it. But they seem to... They seem to really want to hammer home the fact that she doesn't remember her past experiences, she doesn't experience love in the same way, and she's just in it for the pleasure. Now, once again, in it for the pleasure, not a problem, but don't make it so obvious. Don't ram it down. And that's, it's, it's, I mean, I've already said it, it's offensive and it's, it's just not, it's not appropriate. I mean, what is this comic rated? It's rated T for teen. I mean, it's just, it's just unnecessary. I mean, it's, and it's, it's shown perfectly in the fact that while she's bathing, in what is a pretty cool shot, actually, with her flicking her hair around, there's a young boy, funnily enough, 10 to 12, who takes shots of her, proclaims there is a god, and then posts it on the internet. Hey, look at this hot, this hottie. It's just, it's it's blatant, and I just, I've never liked blatant. I mean, it's, I, I prefer subtlety, and this is just, is not subtle. They then try to, you know, uh, defend themselves a little bit later on, where uh, the post-coital scene has some uh, burn marks in uh, Roy's chest and on her headboard, obviously indicating that, yeah, she had some pleasure in what, what they did and stuff. But it's just, it's not, it's it's too little too late, I'm afraid. I mean, they've, they've basically, they've ruined Starfire for me. Like I said, I'm not a slave to pre-reboot Starfire. I mean, I like to pre-reboot, but I'm not, I don't have Starfire posters on my wall or anything crazy. But I just, this character now for me is, is destroyed. And, uh, this this comic suffers because of it. After the first four or five pages, it just goes completely down there from there. So the first four or five pages, I would have given a solid three and a half Lukes until the disgrace that is the Starfire stuff, which uh, bumps it right down to one. Next up, we have Catwoman with Crystal. Catwoman is... Um, I'm going to get Richo to do that name again. Cause... Uh, Catwoman is written by Judd Winnick and drawn by Guillem March. Guillermo. March, is it? Because he's Spanish. Sorry, Guillermo. I do apologise, Guillermo. Okay, there's been a lot of uh, controversy about the Catwoman book. It's very obviously geared towards those who appreciate the female form. But having said that, um, the only I've never read Catwoman before, but I obviously know about her from popular, popular media, you know, movies and whatnot. And so there's nothing I didn't expect from Catwoman. Catwoman has always been portrayed in the popular media as sexy and sultry, and that's what you get in this book. Um, I'll come back to that in a minute, but the fir- 
putting that aside, because that's what I expected, the first thing I noticed was that she's not very friendly to the cats. In, in <laughs> the pets. She, she forced all the cats into one cat cage with bits of cats hanging out the side. And that's a, that's oh, and you can, you can tell which of us here is the big cat orator, can't you? <laughs> <laughs> Once again, putting aside the, the sexiness of it, uh, the story was a lot easier to follow than the other two books I've spoken about. Um, I thought the character, without the pictures, was introduced well. Um, then, but then the story getting very boring. Um, about halfway through the book, I was incredibly bored, and by the time we got to the, the controversial end scene, I just didn't care. I was like, whatever. I wasn't offended by this book because, as I say, it's nothing that I didn't expect. Um, the first few panels, you don't you don't see. Catwoman's face, you just see various voluptuous parts of her body in states of dress and undress. It's 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 aimed towards a specific audience and, and it would please that specific audience. It didn't please me and I won't be reading it after this, but not because I was offended, just because I'm not interested. I give it one point five weeks. Uh, let's move on hopefully to something a bit better. What's next on the list? We have Red Lands. Okay, Red Lands, uh, written by Peter Milligan, penciler Ed Baines. Benes. Benes. Oh, there you go. Learns it every day. Um, I liked it. It was quite good. I had. Uh, I'm a. I'm a Green Lantern universe fan. Uh, I had high hopes for this to be interesting. Uh, as I've mentioned in the previous podcasts, one of the comics that I'm really looking forward to is New Guardians. Guardians. Greenland's had a bit of a slump recently, I think. I mean, Blackest Night was was awesome, awesome stuff, and then it sort of just sort of it sort of tapered down from there. Never, never cracked, but you know, not as good as the highs that it was. Uh, I think this uh, is a very welcome indication that it may be returning to that high. Uh, it was an odd choice for a series to have. Uh, let's face it; I mean, they're they're essentially sort of. They're basically bad guys. I mean, they just go around and they're just, you know, in full of rage. I mean, they're, they're powered by uh, rage, like the Greenlands are powered by will. So it was, uh, it, when I first heard about it, I thought it was a bit of an odd choice. But they are awesome characters, and uh, I'm glad that we're seeing some more of them. It has, uh, as, as it would be a bit hard to have an entire series based around people that just basically just rage all the time and just destroy everything in their way. So they've gone for an interesting twist where Atrocitus questions his rage. So he basically he was at, when he was first introduced as a character, is awesome in the Rise of the Red Lands. And obviously he's uh, he's against the manhunters, manhunters and the Guardians and what they did to his planet and his people and all that sort of stuff. Um, I highly recommend that you check that out. Which then eventually led to the creation of the Red Rings and the Red Lands themselves and their cool characters. Um, but he's, uh, he's, he's questioning that, he's, he's level with rage, and he's found that now that the the focus of his rage is now gone, which I won't ruin for you, go read it, awesome, uh, it's, he, he's, what is basically is his purpose, what essentially is his role in the universe. He's very interesting, he's a multifaceted character, and I really like him, I also quite like um, the rest of the Red Lanterns themselves. Uh, so he goes on a bit of a soul-searching mission. So he gains a new uh, purpose in life, and decides that rage can be focused in a new way, in a very interesting way, I think, and will basically just will be uh, rage against injustice. And what that makes perfect sense to me. I mean, is what happens to his family, basically his, his entire race, 
was an injustice, and he should do what he's doing now. So not only will he fight for the injustice that was perpetrated against him, he'll fight against the injustice that was perpetrated against everybody. Uh, the artwork is very cool. Uh, it's it's got that sort of that sort of fancy dynamic sort of comic art that I seem to quite like. I'm not too sure why that is, um, but it's yeah, it's it's easy to follow. You know exactly what's going on. The Redlands themselves just look awesome. Um, they're spewing up of blood every time they activate and all sort of stuff. It just just looks really cool, and uh, I highly recommend it. I was not disappointed at all, and I gave it four loops. Uh, coming up next, we have Richo with DC Universe Presents. DC Universe Presents is going to be DC's showcase book, uh, rotating creative teams, rotating characters. I assume it will be a tryout book to see how characters will sell to determine whether they're going to give them new series or miniseries. Um, they open with Dead Man in a story written by Paul Jenkins and drawn by. Yep. It's a rather interesting issue. It's very character-driven. Uh, a little bit slow. It sets up the character reasonably well. Gives a pretty interesting take on his karmic journey, which has always been part of the character's um, story, is that um, a god called Ramakrishna gives him a, uh, a chance to basically uh, redeem his former life, where he was not a very likable person. This time around, though, they established that there is a, a certain number of steps that he has to take on this karmic journey to reach the person that he can be. And I think that's actually quite an interesting take because in the past it's just been a, a little bit more random. It's, you're going back, you're doing this stuff, we don't really know how long you're going to go for before you've re redeemed yourself. So, um, that was... Yeah, so it's a, it's a fairly solid opening. Um... I feel that it probably helps to have a little bit of background into the character. Um, but, look, he was a good choice to launch this book. His profile has risen recently uh, by his appearances in books like Brightest Day. So, But, yeah, but look, it was a solid issue. It wasn't brilliant. There was nothing groundbreaking about it. The artwork was nice. Good, solid storytelling. Um, I give it three Lukes. Coming up next, we have Luke with another bat book, Nightwing. Cool. Okay, Nightwing is written by Kyle Higgins um, and is drawn by Eddie Barrows and it's dealing with Dick Grayson's return to the Nightwing role after spending so long under the Bat Cow. Eddie Barrows' artwork is quite nice, as we've said with quite a lot of the books actually. The artwork in a lot of the books has been um, quite good. It's nice to see um, someone try and write Dick as being Dick again and show the way that the, show the, and the differences between him and Bruce, you know, as opposed to the precise, calculating, control everything at all costs nature of, of Bruce Wayne. Dick's a bit more freewheel and a bit more loose. Um, not to the point where he's reckless, of course, but um, to the point where he comes across as being a bit more human. I thought the start was a little bit slow, and there is a bit too much exposition. I wanted more with the Haley Circus, just to make it, just to show a bit more of an emotional connection, and to expand on Dick's world. A bit more too. We've done. We've seen Batman's world expanded upon, or at least set up in rather interesting ways in um, Scott Snyder's first issue of Batman. And I just wanted a little bit more for Dick. How is that? Um, the issue is is uh, is enjoyable, um, and certainly the um, the end fight scene with its revelations is quite nice to read. Um, I give this again three looks. Cool. I agree with everything you said. 
with the home stretch now we have Richo with Mr. Terrific. Uh, okay, Mr. Terrific by Eric Wallace and Gianluca Gugliotta. I've been a fan of Mr. Terrific uh, since he first appeared in uh, JSA. This is actually a, a very, quite a different take on the character. It does seem to come across as a bit of a reboot. And as we know from um, some interviews and things, it looks like the JSA actually aren't part of uh, this new DC universe. So that this looks like it, it is a reboot and a reintroduction of the character. Yeah, so this is this is a bit of a reboot. But um, I have to say, I, I was... I was very impressed with this issue. Michael Holt comes across as a very interesting and likable character. I understand the motivation for why he does what he does. Um, his intelligence, his abilities, um, his general skill levels, all of these things are shown to me in a very good way. The book was entertaining. It introduces some, you know, some new villains and, and things like that. So it, it's really achieving what, you know, what a good first issue should do. It's a little bit, once again, a little bit Probably a little bit too much exposition. The flashback to the death of his wife does help does to set up the character, character, but I thought it could have been done in a, a, a slightly better way. way. But, uh, but this, um, does this does introduce, introduce a, potential a potential new villain threat, threat as well, as well a, couple a couple of subplots, of subplots um, and, and ends and with, with one of, I think, one of the better cliffhangers in the books today. There was one scene that kind of detracts from the issue for me, though. We're introduced to Karen Starr, uh, who is the love interest for Mr. Terrific, and uh, for those in the know, uh, is Power Girl in the pre-DC New Universe. But they, she has a run-in with a black woman that's kind of... It's like they're trying to make a race issue out of it, and it just seems like a very awkward and kind of slapped-in scene that just... It, it, it disrupts the flow of the book. It's almost like they're trying to say Power Girl is racist. I, I mean, I don't really understand what the point of the scene is at all. And it actually, I found it very annoying. Just just that one page actually detracted from the whole issue for me. I would have ranked this probably four or maybe even four and a half if it wasn't for that scene. But that scene drags it down a bit. So I give this uh, three and a half looks. Okay, so Richo again. We're going to stick with Richo. We're going to move on to one of the ones I was looking forward to. Demon Knights. Demon Knights, written by Paul Cornell and penciled by... Diogenes. This is uh, DC's basically medieval fantasy book. Uh, it's set well in the past, starring uh, the demon, who in this incarnation is a human man called Jason Blood, who uh, was an apprentice... Apprentice? Servant? Yeah. Well, apprentice to, to, Merlin. to Merlin. And... You know, basically gets stuck with a demon inside him for his efforts. Um, <laughs> That's a bit harsh. It is a bit harsh. Teaming up with Madame Xanadu, uh, another magical character from uh, the DCU who, in recent times, was established as uh, actually being strongly connected with Camelot as well. Also, the third um, non-original character in the book is the Shining Knight in um, his reimagined version as seen most recently in Grant Morrison's Seven Soldiers. Um, and a few new characters that they've introduced. Uh, we don't really see a lot about them in this issue, but uh, one of them is an archer riding a horse. We don't really get to see much about her. Uh, there's an Amazon pop Possibly an Amazon woman <laughs> in there. Um, Let's which... just say all the archetypes are taken care of. Yeah. 
Which does actually kind of illustrate uh, what I would say would be my biggest problem with this book. The book itself is, is, is not bad, but it is a little bit all over the place. Yeah. Um, it's jumping between characters. It doesn't really have a great focus on any one or two characters. I mean, we start off being, you know, in Camelot. We see the introduction of uh, the demon and Jason Blood, and it looks like they're going to be the focus, you know, the focal point characters for this story. But then we, we end up sort of just jumping back and forth. We're introduced to Vandal Savage, and suddenly we get a little bit about him. He's and, cool. Yeah. Um, look, it's it's not a bad issue per se, but it just really lacks storytelling focus. Um, and I have to say, I was very excited by this book i love the demon love madame zanadu and uh you know and paul cornell i've been a big fan of his work both uh on doctor who episodes that he's written and his uh previous work on things like uh, captain britain but i've got to say this issue was a little disappointing for me it's not so bad that i'm not going to sort of pick up the next couple of issues just to see where it is going but it really does lack focus look i'm going to give it two and a half looks uh, okay, Richo again with Deathstroke. That's right, I'm a popular guy. Uh, Deathstroke is basically about a mercenary um, killer, not a very nice guy, and uh, yeah, that's pretty much all I could say about that. This issue was nothing. It really was just, <laughs> yeah, there he is, he's a killer. Okay, I got that. Now let's show him doing some killing. There's a, yeah, the, the, there's a slight twist... Uh, one page moment towards the end of the book that tells you a lot about who the character is. My biggest problem is is that now that I understand who the character is, I just don't find him very interesting. Deathstroke for me has always worked well as a villain uh, who gets occasional use, but having an entire series centered around him, I'm just it just doesn't really doesn't do it for me at all. Um, they've tried this once before. And that series didn't really work for me either. Look, I'm going to give it two Lukes, but it really is just there. I will say, uh, Joe Bennett's artwork is very nice. But, yeah, there's, the story just didn't grab me at all. You're actually going to have... Uh, the next two are going to be both Lukes. So two in a row. Mm-hmm. We'll have the two Legion books. Starting uh, with Legion Lost. Um, okay, Legion Lost is written by Fabian Nicieza. And also by Pete Woods, and it deals with a group of legionnaires tra- tracking a bad guy um, through time back to um, our present day. Just a select, uh, select group through the course of the story find themselves trapped with no way of no discernible way of getting home. Look, it's a it's it's an okay first issue. There's nothing particularly brilliant about it. I think Pete Woods has drawn better in the past. It feels it features on actually some uh, fan favorite legionnaires like uh, Wildfire, Timberwolf. Um, Dawnstar, Tellus, um, but they've been handled better in the past. Um, it's an okay read. It's nothing spectacular. I give this two looks. Okay, so the other, there were actually two Legion books, so the other one that came out was Legion of Superheroes. Legion of Superheroes, the title proper, is written by Paul Levitz and illustrated by Francis Potella. And I'll go to Potella's artwork first because um, the last um, incarnation of Legion was um, illustrated by um, uh, Sinner. Uh, and I think the Sinai did a very good job on the Last Legion series, and I think Francis Potella does a very good job as well without being derivative. And there's a slightly darker hue to his artwork, yet at all times I know who all the characters are. His figure work and his uh, framing is quite nice, um, and he tells a pretty good story. Paul Levitz, of course, wrote The Last Incarnation, um, and really this is just a follow-on from 
that storyline. I I enjoyed the issue, but then I enjoy it as just a follow-on from the Legion, pro- Legion itself. For new people, it is going to get confusing because it does talk about elements, and I'm not going to give away those elements. It does talk about elements that occur at, in, in the very last issue itself. And so going from that to this is going to seem a bit confusing. This is, I, I give this three looks, enjoyable, solid. I'm a huge Legion fan and look forward to the rest of the series. I really enjoyed what Paul Levitz has been doing with the Legion. He's gotten the Legion back on track in terms of where they're at. I love the inclusion of the new characters like Dragonwing, who was um, previously in the Legion Academy. And yes, greatly looking forward to the rest of the series, but probably not a good one. Not a good one for new readers. Okay, coming up next, Grifter. Okay, so Grifter is written by Edmondson and penciled by Cafu. Another cool name. Uh, it is the attempt to integrate uh, another Wildstorm character into the DC universe, now that they're both part of the same universe. Uh, it mixes up his origin uh, in order to incorporate into the DC universe, and I think it does a pretty good job. I came, uh, I came into this not expecting much. I didn't care about Grifter as a character in the Wildstorm universe. I mean, it was just another dude with guns, you know, trying to be cool, just like everything else in those in the Wildcats was. Another thing, that's just a, a slightly off topic, but Wildcats stood for a Covert Action Team. They were never covert. They were always <laughs> blowing stuff up everywhere. The Wildcats sucked. Yeah, anyway, if you're going to be a covert team, you're not going to be running around in bright, shiny costumes all the time. Just terrible. Anyway, moving on. Uh, so Grifter, yeah, so like I said, wasn't that big of a fan to start off with, but this actually is pretty cool. Um, just like the Resurrection Man comic, it starts off with an incident on a plane. Uh, it's slightly different where uh, they believe that uh, Cole is in fact a terrorist himself. Away it goes from there. Uh, it's has it then goes into a bit of flashback into explain why he got into that. I've always always been a bit of a sucker for that. It's like you know, you know, and and, and here's how we got to this point and previously on and all that sort of stuff. I don't know. I like that sort of stuff. I'm not too sure why. Um, the artwork is uh, quite cool. It's um, it's not too flashy. I mean, it's a lot of people would just call it serviceable, but it does what it has to do in my opinion. It's very clear who these people are. It strikes me a bit as a Gary Frank-like, um, which is not a bad thing. So it's pretty cool. Like I said, they've changed his origin. They've found a very interesting, interesting way to incorporate what I believe will eventually eventually be revealed to be the Daemonites. But I could be wrong, and that's not a spoiler because I could be wrong. Who knows? Um, and so essentially you have Grifter, who actually in this incarnation is a Grifter, funnily enough, which is awesome. Um, and he has his voices in his head, and he doesn't know whether he's going crazy or not. Like I said, it doesn't—it's not nothing. It doesn't blow you away, but it was—it's a lot better than I thought it was going to be. I thought, I personally, I thought it was going to be like a Green Arrow sort of deal, uh, but it's—I quite enjoyed, it and uh, it entertained me. Well, I gave it three and a half looks. Next up, we have Richo with Frankenstein, Agent of Shade. Frankenstein, Agent of Shade. Yet another example of difficult names to pronounce. This book is written by Jeff Lemire and penciled by Alberto Ponticelli. Uh, the premise behind this book, Frankenstein's monster goes out monster hunting. And I've got to say, I think that's kind of cool. Yeah, awesome. This book has very much has a um, Hellboy BPRD kind of feel to it. He's part of an organization called Shade, which is run by an elderly Japanese man now inhabiting the body of a Japanese schoolgirl. Um, Father Time or something, isn't it? Father Time, yeah. 
their headquarters is in a sphere floating through New York that uh, everybody shrinks down to get inside because they have the atom working for them who makes things shrink. The team that he works with consists of a whole bunch of other monsters, all basically, all pretty much based on the universal, classic universal monsters. Um, they're called the Creature Commandos, and they're an updated version of the World War Two weird World War Stories characters. Mm. Yeah, they're kind of cool. Um, we even have the Bride of Frankenstein in this one. Um who basically runs off by herself to do missions. And, and there's, there's the suggestion that there's a few problems between Frankenstein and his bride, but uh, that's not shown yet because, you know, we've got to get to the monster hunting. i got to say, this was entertaining. It was a lot of fun. It's not a, a brilliant story. It's not groundbreaking or anything, but I really enjoyed, you know, there's a lot, a lot of big, silly, crazy ideas in this book. Frankenstein himself, I think, is really nicely characterized. Um, you don't learn a lot about him, but I've, I learnt enough to sort of keep me entertained and to, to get me through the book. Uh, as I said, it's very Hellboy-like, but I don't think that's a bad thing at all. And um, I'm going to give this three looks. Awesome. Cool. All right, so to finish stuff, we'll have uh, the last two from this batch, which are both Green Lantern titles. Uh, they'll be covered by myself. Uh, Green Lantern and Green Lantern Core. Starting off with Green Lantern, we have uh, writer Jeff Johns, who has basically been steering the not only the Green Lantern universe for the last couple of years, but is now also steering the DC universe, uh, with pencils uh, by Doug Mankey. Uh, I'm a big fan of Doug Mankey's artwork. Um, I just I just think it's awesome stuff. It's just it's easy to follow. It also has a sort of a slightly Gary Frank sort of deal to it, which I don't know. It's, 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 it just works for me. I mean, it's just you just know instantly what's going on. I think he's a good storyteller. And uh, the only thing, the only problem I have with him is he, uh, whenever somebody smiles, it just looks incredibly creepy. <laughs> I, just, I don't know what the deal is there. Yeah, there's one particular panel, but it's basically as long as you're, if you're an alien and you smile, it's all good. But if you're a human and you smile, my God, dude, show some gum. It's odd. Uh, but other than that, he's awesome, and uh, his creature designs are cool, and he just he's just he's perfectly suited to Green Lantern. The story, as we've mentioned multiple times in these in these reviews, but it just it's not a number one. It doesn't it doesn't reboot anything. Green Lantern universe hasn't been rebooted. It follows directly on from uh, the War of the Lanterns and all that sort of New Guardians and all that sort of stuff. So how Jordan is not a Green Lantern anymore? There is so Jordan is just a normal guy. So he's. Uh, he, he's got no job. He's got no money. He strikes out with Carol yet again. <laughs> he just he has no clue. Carol's no longer a Star Sapphire, or at least hasn't been for quite a while. Uh, so the actual focus of the issue is on Sinestro, which to me is not a bad thing because Sinestro is freaking awesome. Sinestro has been chosen to be a Green Lantern. It's uh, pretty amazing stuff, and I I think handled quite well. I mean, it's, it's just about everybody thinks what is going on. And uh, I, I actually mentioned, I don't know if I mentioned on the podcast itself, but I actually mentioned to the NCP crew quite a, quite a few weeks back, that it, it, why has nobody done a story where the ring got it wrong and got it wrong on purpose? And I uh, would be very pleased if this was that story. So if the ring actually, apparently the ring never makes a mistake. So... If the ring has intentionally made a mistake, that would be mad. 
probably won't turn out to be that way. It'll just be because Sinestro has learnt the Eravine ways. But hey, who knows? I mean, they've always, always firmly established that Sinestro does what he does because he thinks he's right. You can't necessarily tell it to say that he's wrong. It's just wrong with our moral standpoint. So anyway, we'll see how, how it progresses. But I will be, indeed be keep reading. Um, it's a return to form for Jeff Johns, in my opinion. It's uh, looking good for the future of the Greenland books. And I give it three and a half looks. And that brings us to our final comic, another Green Lantern title, Green Lantern Core. Uh, it's by Peter J. Tomasi and Fernando Passerin. It deals with the two Green Lanterns that are from the Earth sector, so like I said before, Stuart and Gardner. And they're, you know, what they get up to when they're not Lanterns, basically, so they have to have day jobs and stuff like that. The stuff with them was, you know... It did what it had to do, I suppose. I mean, it was it was good to see Gardner. I mean, everybody, they, everybody, they, they don't have any secret identities, so everybody knows that they are, in fact, Green Lanterns. And uh, having a group of people, you know, pestering for autographs and stuff like that while he's waiting for a job interview, I thought was, you know, it was entertaining. Hasn't, you know, it's nothing that hasn't been done before, but it was okay. It was good to see that he didn't blow his top, which is <laughs> which is excellent, which is, you know, what old school Gardner probably would have done. Um, and the, the bit with Stuart and... Uh, the builder contractors went on for far too long. It was, I mean, that was true to Stuart's character, but I mean, he made his point, and it went on for like two pages extra than I thought it should have done. Uh, I really like the start of the story. I don't want to give too much away, but it just, I mean, it shows some core members having a bit of a confrontation, and uh, I really, really liked it. It was visceral, it was dynamic. Uh, the artwork is is uh, is pretty good. There's a, has a couple of shots. Uh, close up of people's faces that don't quite work uh, but other than that yeah um, it was enjoyable um, story wise though I'm I'm pretty interested to see the the continuing story um, there's a it introduces a big bad but doesn't exactly tell you who it is but it's the big bad's capable of uh, taking out entire planets and does so just to prove a point which is pretty cool but enjoyed it about roughly, roughly the same as uh, Greenland maybe a little less at my I'm not really that big a fan of Gardner and Stuart as characters, but to be honest, I'm not really that big of a fan of Jordan either. I actually prefer Kyle, so there you go. Controversy. You're a monster! Um, so uh, I'm going to go with uh, three looks. Well, there you go. That was huge. Thank you for uh, sticking with it. I hope it was informative and entertaining. Uh, we had fun. We'll complete the coverage of the New 52 in the next podcast when we have the last week of releases. And I'm really looking forward to it. So just a reminder of our competition that we introduced in the last podcast. We're giving away a free copy of both the Killing Joke and the Arkham Asylum trades. Uh, two awesome trades for one of our awesome listeners. Uh, to win, all you have to do is email feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com, post it on our Facebook wall uh, at facebook.com nerdculturepodcast, or tweet us at, at nerdculturecast, the answer to this question. At the start of Detective Comics number one, Batman mentions how many people the Joker has killed. What is that number? Entries close October 8th, so make sure you send in your answer before then. And will be announced on that podcast after that. Coming up next, coming soon. Okay, a very sparse uh, selection of nerd culture related films <laughs> for this episode. It's... Uh, Pretty dismal. The only release we have is actually Real Steel on October 6th, uh, starring Hugh Jackman and a bunch of CGI robots boxing. Uh, I'm not very intrigued, and <laughs> I don't, won't, won't be rushing out to see it. Uh, 
There's something about boxing robots that appeals to me, but I'm not quite sure that this is going to do it. But it's basically it's basically an unofficial film version of uh, Rock'em Sock'em Robots, isn't it, really? That's exactly what it is. <laughs> they've, they've now actually gotten to the point where they've wiped out you know, video games. Obviously, the rides that they were basing movies on a few years ago, that's yeah. now done. And we're now stuck with board games. There's a whole bunch of board games, though. I mean, uh... Battleship, Battleship, Battleship. Gets, comes yeah. out. <laughs> uh, How does that work, though? I don't remember there being any aliens in the original Battleship game. Let's well, face there's facts. aliens now. Let's face facts, it doesn't work, but they're doing it anyway. <laughs> yeah, anyway I'm very intrigued to see Monopoly. Later on a style. It is Ridley. Mm. So, who knows? Anyway, uh, so yes, that, that's, that's it for coming soon. Okay, so next episode, uh, because of the very poor selection of uh, nerd-related films coming out, uh, we're actually going to do another classic. Oh, well, one we would consider a classic, you may not. Uh, Popcorn Junkie on John Carpenter's Starman. And now From the Racks, as I mentioned, is going to finish off the New 52 uh, with the final week's releases, which will include Superman. Yeah. Which is hopefully going to be good. I'm <laughs> <laughs> looking forward to that. Yeah, so, we'll, we'll see how it goes. And a bunch of other stuff, but hope you had fun. Thank you very much. It was an epic episode. As I mentioned at the start, we'll have the edited version available on iTunes and the unedited full review of the 52 comics on the website. And uh, just a reminder, if you're a new comic reader or a recent comic reader, please send us your feedback because we really want to hear about how the new 52 is working for you as well. Exactly right. As we've seen, uh, Crystal's had some interesting comments, <laughs> and uh, you know you don't you don't necessarily agree or disagree. We want to hear from you. I mean, uh, most likely you'll disagree with me because everybody, <laughs> everybody, <else> everybody <laughs> seems to. <laughs> it's interesting, but uh, I'm a simple man. Yeah, so just, uh, send in your comments. Uh, as I mentioned uh, with the competition, the uh, same sort of way. Feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com, Facebook page, Twitter us. Uh, rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe. The more people that subscribe, the better we feel about ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> we just want your love. Thank you very much for listening and thank you to my NCP crew, Richo. Starfire doesn't remember me either. Luke. I already feel better about myself. And Crystal. Bye. Bye, everybody. Take off your low heels and put on your hoe heels. <laughs>